The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Three, No Room at the Inn. The three porches at the Brown House collapsed onto each other when their posts had burned through. The semicircle of spectators jumped back or ran a little further up the street, only to turn and resume gawking, like zebras the lion had not caught. Sirens continued to wail in the distance. Martin felt uncomfortable interrupting Susan's vigil for the Victorian's last hours, but watching it burn did not seem like a healthy thing to do. Uh, Susan? Uh, Susan? There's nothing we can do here. She continued to stare. I think we should get you to someplace else where you can stay. Can you stay with one of your neighbors? What? Can you stay with one of your neighbors for a few days? I'll help carry your things there. Do you know one of your neighbors well? No, I've only been here a few months. She continued to stare as this fire slowly consumed its prey. The only one I know is Mr. Mendez. She glanced toward the little bald man. Sometimes I'd say hi, and we'd talk when I came home if he was out watering his tomatoes. Good, good. Maybe you can stay with the Mendezes then for a couple of days until... No, no, his house is full. Grandmother, mother-in-law, sister and her kids, a nephew and his kids. Oh, oh, I see. Uh, any other neighbors? Susan turned away from the fire with her eyes shut tight. No, I hardly ever see any of them. They're all strangers. Okay, well, what about friends somewhere else in the city? I'd be happy to carry her. No, no friends in the city. Her voice was getting impatient. I moved here from Marlboro six months ago. I had a couple of friends out there, but not here. His good Samaritan detour was turning into quicksand. Oh, ah, uh, geez, Marlboro. I uh, don't think that's going to be possible, at least not by tonight. What about uh, co-workers? Does, um, Lori live in town? I don't know where she lives. We don't talk personal that much, okay? She snapped. Martin felt neck deep in the quicksand. He pulled at his collar. As much as he did not like pressing the matter, he felt he had no choice. He could not just resume his travels north and abandon her on the streets. Helping meant prying questions at a bad time. He swallowed hard and went on. What about, uh, family? He recalled her saying her parents lived in Ohio, but perhaps there was a sister or an aunt nearby. No, there's no one, she started to shout, but dialed back her tone. I'm all alone out here, okay? There's nobody. After my stupid boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, he said it was over between us, but I was the one who had to leave. His condo, his car, he got to keep our friends. I got nothing. Her eyes flashed with rage, but got moist after a moment. Her voice sank into a whisper. He said we were forever. Martin felt like an animal stuck in a snare. Usually, when things went wrong, a broken fan belt, a ruptured water pipe, his mind quickly figured out some sort of plan B. This time, however, his knack for plan B thinking had abandoned him. He had no idea how to actually help her. Susan wiped her eye with the back of her hand, sniffed hard and straightened up. I had to start all over. So I did. I found a job in the bank, downtown. I found this cute little place to start over. She looked back at the burning Victorian and paused. That, that was my, my new life. 
She closed her eyes tightly and shook off a sob. Martin felt awkward. What does one say? He started to put an arm around her, but stopped. That felt even more awkward. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't know about, uh, I mean, I'm sorry about your house, but we have to, well, you know, find you someplace to stay. There's nothing we can do here. Let me uh, help you with your stuff. He picked up the coat and sweaters and rolled them onto the canvas bag. He felt relieved having a task he could do, some way to help. With some cord from his bag, he lashed the canvas bag and duffel to the roller bag's long handle. He stood up, surveying his progress. The roller bag bundle was bulky, but fairly manageable as a load. His minor feeling of success faded when he realized it was also all she had now. His plan B intuition returned. A hotel. She had recommended that he stay in a hotel instead of walking. You could stay in a hotel until you found a new apartment. How does that sound? Susan did not respond. We should get you to a hotel room to stay in, Martin repeated. Mm. Martin took that as agreement. He realized that someone should know what he was doing. He told Mr. Mendez that he was going to find a hotel for Susan. He left his name, address, and cell phone number with Mr. Mendez. Cell phones were useless at the time, but he wanted to leave some sort of record in case someone came looking for her. Though, from what she had said, who would that be? He pulled at Susan's elbow to start her walking away from the fire. I saw a Holiday Inn down the street when we were coming under 93. What do you say we go get you a room there, huh? You'll have a bed for the night, get some rest. Sure, she said flatly. They walked slowly and silently for a couple of blocks. Martin had to portage Susan's bag bundle on his head to get through the stalled traffic. A frustrated policeman was trying to clear an intersection, but with little success. Each opening he created was quickly filled by some other driver who thought that open space was just for them. The cats refused to be herded. Martin felt uncomfortable. A Boy Scout does not lead a woman, whom he barely knew, to some unknown place, it felt all kinds of wrong. Someone else needed to know. Uh, maybe you should text your dad and let him know that you'll be in a hotel tonight, Martin suggested. Susan did not respond at first, but eventually pulled out her phone. She looked at the screen, then showed it to Martin. Oh, no signal. Well, uh, you could try again later. You should let him know. He worries, you said. Hmm. She dumped her phone back in her purse. As they made their way through the lines of cars that filled Washington Street, Martin could see a fire engine several blocks up the street. Flashing lights, siren, it was all the very image of urgency, except that it wasn't moving. The way the big red truck towered over its surroundings of gray, white, and beige car roofs, it looked to Martin like an automotive reenactment of Shackleton's ship Endurance trapped in the polar ice. If that fire company is trying to get to Wheeler Street, they won't find much left by the time they get there, he thought. Pessimism is not a good thing for sharing, so he kept that thought to himself. Hey, look, there's that Holiday Inn I saw, Martin tried to sound upbeat. Susan did not look up, but trudged along behind him, eyes down. Several clumps of people stood under the carport in front of the hotel lobby, as if it were a neighborhood barbecue. The lobby itself was full of people, standing in pairs and trios, cocktail party fashion. People sat on every chair. They sat upon the tables, even in the planters. 
People sat along the walls with bags or boxes beside them. The lobby looked more like an airport gate after a long, delayed flight. The air was heavy, humid, and smelled of perspiration. Martin pulled Susan to one side of the lobby doors. It's really crowded in here. How about you wait here with your bag, and I'll go see about a room for you. Susan didn't answer, but took the handle of her roller bag. Martin stepped over the legs of people sitting along the walls and through clusters of people standing around. The desk clerk seemed very busy writing things on loose paper. Um, excuse me, uh, excuse me, hi, hi, I'd, I'd like a room. The clerk scoffed but composed himself. <coughs> uh, no, sir, no rooms. None? Don't you usually? Not at all. I was three-quarters booked when the convention before the power went out. Between the conventioneers, stranded travelers, and locals who think they should stay in a hotel because their house doesn't have power, we don't have any power either. Why is that better? I don't know. Anyhow, people have been pouring in here all morning, offering cash for a room. I've been booked solid since 10.30. Oh, well, all right then. How about another hotel in the area? Martin asked. Don't count on it, pal offered a man in a rumpled tan suit. I've been working my way out from the center of town all morning. Marriott's full. They sent me to the Sonesta. They were full. Try the Marlowe on the river, they said. Full. Marlowe said I should try the Hampton. I schlep all the way over there, but wouldn't you know, they were full too. Hampton guy told me to try the Holiday Inn, but it's the same story. Full. My next tries the La Quinta. Without phones, the clerk added, I got no way of knowing who's got rooms and who isn't. My spidey sense hasn't picked up any vibrations on the empty rooms either. You're kind of on your own. Look, Martin's tone was more impatient than angry. That young lady over there needs a room. Her apartment house just burned down. She's got no friends in the town, no family, nowhere to stay. Don't you have something, anything? The clerk scowled, raised a jabbing finger at Martin, but glanced at Susan. Her orphan look melted him. His arm dropped to his side. Ah, crud. I wish I could help, but I got nothing. The conference rooms are all full of people camping out. I've been letting people hang out here in the lobby, along the halls, but as you can see, that's full, too. Truth is, if the fire marshal came in here, he'd go ballistic and order everyone out. I'm already on thin ice as it is. What I can tell you is that some people with rooms have been doubling up, kind of like subletting. I'm not supposed to allow that, but yeah, what can I say? A portly man, face glistening, sidled up to Martin. Pardon me, uh, I couldn't help but overhearing that uh, you say the little lady over there is in desperate need of a place to stay. Yeah, Martin said cautiously. Is this guy part of the hotel staff, he wondered. Yeah, well, we would hate to see anyone, you know, like left out on the streets during a crisis like this, especially when we had the means to help them. We? Martin asked. The glistening man pointed with the neck of his beer bottle. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Jimbo, my associate, over there by the windows. We were in town for the medical devices convention, so we already had a room. We're like uh, doctors, you see. Dr. Jimbo? Our room has two big beds, you see, and it was Jimbo and his uh, wife in one and me in the other. 
Martin could only see Jimbo having a hearty laugh with two other portly men. No Mrs. Jimbo in sight. So I figured he and I could do a double up in one of the beds, and uh, the little lady, she could double up with Jimbo's wife. The glistening man beamed proudly at his clever generosity. Mrs. Jimbo doesn't even have a name, Martin wondered. His spidey sense shouted, no way. Well, thanks for the offer, but I think we'll look for something else. The glistening man's smile dropped. So what are you, like her brother or something? No, I'm just a guy trying to help, Martin turned to look towards Susan. The man took advantage of Martin's distracted attention to elbow him aside. We'll just see if the little lady can decide for herself. This is definitely bad, Martin thought. Martin stumbled over someone's legs. The sweaty man got to Susan before Martin did. Excuse me there, miss, but I hear you're in need of a place to stay. Susan's eyes came up and brightened. Oh? No, no, she doesn't, Martin inserted himself between the man and Susan. Grab the handle of her bag in one hand, her elbow with the other. Come on, Susan, we have to go now. The man grabbed Martin by the shoulder. Hey, pal, mind your own business. Martin reflexively batted the man's hand off his shoulder. The man looked indignant for a moment, then reeled back to throw a punch. Maybe it was the way the man took a half-step back, or maybe it was something else. But the thought flashed across Martin's mind, off balance. With his hand still in front of him, he made a quick little jab to push the man in his chest. The glistening man started to topple backwards. He took faltering steps back, arms flailing, stumbled against another man. While the two were entangled, Martin pushed open the door and ushered Susan out. Once outside, he pulled the disoriented Susan and her bag across the parking lot, through a line of trees, and up the street. He looked back to make sure the man was not following them. He was not. The air outside felt cool and refreshing. Susan looked around. Hey, where are we going? Why did you push that man? Martin hesitated. Let's just say he was being a jerk and needed a push. Why? What did he do? Never mind, Martin mumbled. Susan stopped and gasped. Oh, my God! My apartment is gone! I, I can't go home. I have no home. The fire. Yeah, I'm kind of sorry we couldn't save more of your stuff. No, no, no. We, we, we were crazy to go in there at all. We could have been killed. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I thought we had a little time. We had to save something. At least you have your important papers and photos and some clothes. Sorry about your furniture and dishes and all. Susan waved off his apology. Oh, no, the furniture. It came with the apartment. The clothes, well, I can get more, but where am I going to stay? I don't have any place to stay. I don't know anybody in town. Right, that's why we came here to the Holiday Inn, remember? I said I'd help carry your bags to a hotel. Susan's brow furrowed. When did you say that? Oh, never mind. But if that's why we came here, why did we leave? Martin did not have any easy answers, but was relieved to hear her using more than monosyllables. He thought it best to just skip the part about the sweaty man. They were all full up. We have to look somewhere else. Oh, full, I see. Look somewhere else. Hmm. I have to find a place to stay. I can't just stay on the streets tonight. Oh, oh wait, I remember. There's a, a Hampton something down on McGrath. I walked past it a few times. Here, it's down this way. 
Hold on, hold on. A guy back at the Holiday Inn said hotels downtown were full, so they sent him to the Hampton. It was full, too. The Hampton sent him to the Holiday Inn. Apparently all the stranded people in Boston are working their way out from the center of town, all looking for a place to stay tonight. What? Shoot. With all the hotels that I know, they're, they're all downtown. Her shoulders slumped. If all the hotels are full, that probably means a shelter, and I really don't want that. Can't blame you there. That's another reason why I'm walking. But don't give up yet. There are more hotels. Martin slung his backpack around to dig out his map. He was glad she was finally focusing on her problem at hand. The situation felt much more like a Good Samaritan deed again, and not some creepy abduction. The guy said he was going on to the La Quinta. I know where that one is. It's north of here. I'm beside 93. I've never stayed there. Just pass by it every day. It's not a fancy place from the look of it, but fairly new. Martin studied his map. La Quinta, huh? Sure. Yeah, I could do that. Susan sounded like she was trying to sell herself on the idea. That would be okay. I just need some place, a, a room, get some sleep, uh, figure out what to do next. Huh. Looks like I'm starting all over uh, again. Martin studied the map. Hmm. If we go up this road, Mount Vernon, Broadway, that connects to Mystic Ave. Then up to this triangle here, that should be where La Quinta is. Susan stepped in front of him and faced him, somewhat sheepishly. Um, I don't remember how much after the, uh, the fire got, um, but I do remember that I was yelling at you back there. She pointed back toward the smoke above the rooftops, but did not look in that direction. That wasn't right. Don't worry about it. You were just upset, that's all. Totally understandable. Oh, thanks. I really do appreciate you helping me find a hotel. But you need to be getting home, too. I don't want to keep you from... Martin raised a hand to cancel her concern. Not a problem. I can't just leave you on the streets all stranded now, can I? What kind of Boy Scout would that make? I'll help you get a room, then I'll head for home. Besides, La Quinta is right on my way, see? He pointed to the yellow highlighter line beside his finger on the map. It's a win-win. Oh, Susan's worried look softened with a hint of a smile. Cool. Martin felt encouraged. You're right. After a good night's rest, you can see what the situation is with your old place, find out when the bank is open, etc. So it's not like you're starting over completely from scratch. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Not quite from scratch. I do have my job and my test coming up. These are just wrinkles along the way. Some really, really big wrinkles. As they portaged back across the several lanes of Washington, Martin glanced up the street. Endeavor was still trapped in the ice. The walk up Mount Vernon was more of the same weaving around gridlocked cars. Martin noticed Susan deliberately looking in the opposite direction of the rising smoke beyond. He wanted to make distracting conversation. The task of finding passages through the cars, however, proved distraction enough. Wait a minute, Susan said at one point. You're pulling all my stuff and carrying your own. I'm not carrying anything. So? So? That's, that's not right. It's my stuff. I should be carrying it. She grabbed the roller bag handle away from him. The weight of it surprised her a little. But she put on a, oh, this is nothing, face and walked on. Okay, but if you get tired, you just say something, Martin said as he caught up to her. With his hands free again, Martin checked his phone. None of the news sites would load. No email servers, no messages. 
The last tweet was over an hour old. His other feeds were even older. They reported nothing new, power out all over. There were many wild theories of why. The Sasquatch uprising thread proved that, even in the midst of a national crisis, some people still did not have enough to do. The theory that Al-Qaeda used a thousand little radio-controlled airplanes to simultaneously crash into power lines was at least technological, even if absurd. His phone still had two bars of signal, so he tried to send a couple of more text messages. Monday, 2.45. Power out here. How you doing? Dad. Monday, 2.47. Power out here. You and Judy okay? Dad. Monday, 2.50. Somerville. Doing okay, but going slow. Going to hitch on 93. Texting home? Susan asked. Yes, I have no idea if she'll get it or not. Most cell towers have backup power, some less than others. One of them nearby must still be working. I'm getting two bars. Even then, who knows if the network behind them still has power. Who is she? Uh, your wife? Yes, Margaret. Oh, they walked along a full block without talking. He could picture Margaret getting the house ready for their night without power, hauling up a couple of armloads of firewood, getting the oil lamps topped up and positioned. She would probably have one of her frozen tubs of soup thawing out for supper. He had not received a text from her. Did she try to text him, but the system was down? Was she worried about him? He mentioned his plan B to walk home only once. Her scoff was a few points shy of encouraging. Martin felt uncomfortable with the silence. She's probably worried about me and afraid I'd do something dumb like walk home. He chuckled at his own irony. She'd be right. It is a dumb idea, Susan muttered to herself and shook her head, walking fifty miles. I prefer to think of it as bold or brave or maybe daring. He struck a heroic pose as if he had a cape to flap in the wind. Susan rolled her eyes. No, she's right. It's dumb. The hero pose collapsed. Hey, I'd rather not walk either, but waiting could be worse. She wouldn't like it if I got stuck down here for days or longer. Susan just frowned disapprovingly. What is it with you and waiting? More quiet walking made the blocks pass slowly. So do you and Margaret have any kids? Two. Dustin just graduated college and got married. He's up north. Lindsay's out in Wisconsin going to college in her second year. Martin felt like the rules of conversation dictated that he then ask her about her home and family situation. But he had already run afoul of those topics. The weather? The Red Sox? No good alternative topics came to mind, so he accepted the awkward silence. He wondered how his son and daughter were getting along. From the sounds of things, they were probably without power, too. As kids, they always seemed to enjoy the periodic winter outages, board games played by oil lamps, s'mores in the open wood stove. Martin could imagine both of them seeing this massive outage as just another no-electricity adventure, though he felt this outage was going to be a bit more trouble than adventure. My bag does seem kind of heavy, Susan said after a while, even with the wheels. This stretch is kind of uphill. Want me to take it for a while? Martin offered. No, 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 I can manage, but can we take a little rest? My feet are killing. Martin wanted to keep going. The day was already three-quarters spent, and he was still in the city, more or less. His plans for three miles an hour were not panning out, but he had no defense against big sad eyes. Okay, but we shouldn't rest too long. 
We're not there yet. You can have a good long rest when you get to La Quinta. Susan draped herself over the concrete steps of a shabby yellow house close to the street. Martin did not want to admit it, but getting off his feet did feel good. Maybe you should change out of your work shoes, he suggested. I put a pair of sneakers in your duffel. That's okay, Susan said. We're only going a little further, right? I just need a break. He began to visualize the rest of his day. After his Boy Scout duty was done, he would hitchhike on 93. Ideally, he would find someone bound for New Hampshire who could drop him off at the exit near the bus station and his truck. If all went well, he might still be home by dark and enjoying some of Margaret's soup. The sooner they got going, again, the sooner he could be home. Margaret had been through enough outages to know what to do in the short term. Martin wanted to get started on long-term arrangements around the house in case the outage lasted more than a week. How about if we trade bags, Martin suggested. It's like cross-training, uses different muscles. Susan looked skeptical, but agreed. The traffic at the Broadway intersection was more troublesome to cross. Whoa, said Martin. I think I like gridlock better. This traffic is moving just fast enough to get scary. A gap appears and someone rushes to fill it. Over here, quick, Susan shouted. They bolted through a gap caused by a distracted driver. The driver looked up and honked long and loud. Another car nosed into the gap he left. The driver was shouting something out his window, but Martin and Susan ignored him as they walked briskly between the lanes. I feel like I'm playing a 3D version of Frogger, Martin said. Over here, behind the blue car, they ran through. Once they were under the 93 overpass, they paused for a shared sigh of relief. Mystic Ave, however, was yet another Frogger River. Tell you what, let's stay on the left side. It's a bit bleak, and we'll have to go single file, but we can avoid this intersection farther up. Susan nodded wearily. Martin looked back at Susan as he walked in the lead. La Quinta is a bit further from downtown, so maybe it won't be full, but it should be near bus service when they can get the streets clear enough for buses to run again. Oh, that would be good, Susan half shouted up to Martin. Horns and driver shouts echoed off the concrete wall of 93's elevated deck. I'll have to be able to get into work when they reopen the bank and, and take my test. At one dark traffic light, two cars sat locked with crumpled fenders. One car steamed. Their drivers stood on opposite sides, flailing their arms at each other. The rest of the traffic tried to creep around them, creating gaps in the flow. Look, Martin hollered. See the sign up there? Yes. We should cross now. You ready? She nodded. They managed to cross all three lanes without breaking stride. The drivers were either being kinder, or Martin and Susan were getting better at Frogger. Oh, hey, that's good to see, Susan pointed between two low brick buildings. That glass building back there, that's the Orange Line's Assembly Square stop. That's pretty close to the hotel, actually. This will work out great. I can get a good night's sleep, and when the power comes back on and the tea is running, I can get back to the bank almost as fast as I did before. They made a beeline for the hotel, over curbs and grassy strips, and through the rear of a parking lot. I am so ready for a long, huge nap, Susan said. I don't remember being this tired in a long time. This place won't have power either, Martin cautioned, but at least you'll have a bed. They might still have water pressure for a while, I think, so you could clean up. Cold water, anyhow. 
Susan laughed softly. Cold is fine. I just want to get off my feet. I need some quiet time to clear my head. You know, she continued, maybe you should get a room here, too. Walking to New Hampshire still sounds crazy to me. What could be so bad about waiting until tomorrow? Things are bound to get better in a couple of days. Thanks, but I still don't like waiting, Martin said. He still did not think things would get better in a day, or even a week, for that matter. He had no clear notion of why the roads would become impassable, but it seemed imprudent not to travel while it was still possible. Susan frowned at him. I don't see the big deal about waiting. That's okay, said Martin. Just call me crazy. The important thing is that we get you here to the La Quinta, and you have a place to stay. Martin smiled at the prospect that his good Samaritan detour was nearly done. He had visualized her happy smile upon hearing that there was a room for her. He imagined that he would shake her hand, wish her well, and perhaps say something upbeat like, Hope to see you at the bank again soon. He would try to end their joint adventure on a positive note about the future, her future. Then he would get going and maybe catch a ride up to his truck. They rounded the corner at the front of the building, but stopped cold. Something was wrong. A sizable crowd stood around the lobby door. Many of them were shouting. Martin could not make out what they were shouting, but the tone was unmistakably angry. Others stood braced, as if expecting a strong gust of wind. "'What's going on?' Susan asked. Just then, a man in a tan suit came sailing backwards out of the double doors. He landed on his back and rolled. "'Hey!' That's the guy from Holiday Inn I was telling you about. Two other men came running out, trying to grab the tan suit man. A man and a woman in the crowd pulled at the other two men, not so much to save the man in the tan suit as a chance to get in some licks of their own. The melee broke up into smaller schoolyard scuffles of three and four people, slapping, kicking, and pulling at each other's clothes. One of them made a break for the lobby doors. The other fight ceased, and their combatants also rushed for the doors. What the heck? Martin asked rhetorically. His visions of smiles and handshakes clearly had no place here. The doors flew open, and two other people were pushed out. An opportunist from the parking lot crowd pulled them out of the way and ran through the open doors. The less ambitious in the crowd shouted and shook fists from a safer distance. Susan stared in disbelief. What on earth are they fighting about? Got me. I really didn't think things would get this bad this fast. What do you mean, that bad that fast? Brian, my boss, thought the city would go all chaotic soon after a crisis. Sometimes, when we were working late, he'd talk about how he figured people in the city would go crazy if the system ever broke. How, with just a few days without power, water, and food, hordes of starving people in the city would totally freak out. Fights, riots. Martin decided he'd stop there. A few days, Susan said. The power hasn't even been off for a whole day yet. These people haven't hardly had time to get hungry, let alone starving. True. This can't be what Brian was talking about. Maybe it's more like too many type A personalities in the same place at the same time. Not finding any rooms here either, they just snap. Snapped? More like flipped out. There's no way I'm staying here, Susan pointed at the door. Those people are dangerous. Martin knew she was right. He could not leave her at La Quinta. His good Samaritan deed was not finished after all. Her trouble finding housing was turning out to be similar to his problem finding a bus or a train. He should have resisted the urge to make a little gotcha dig, but he did not. 
"'Hmm,' Martin pulled at his chin. "'I suppose you could wait, though.' He put extra emphasis on the word wait. "'The fighting is bound to stop eventually. "'If you waited until things calmed down, "'you could see if there's a room.' "'Wait, that's crazy. "'They may only stop fighting "'when there's nothing left to fight over. "'I don't want to wait. "'Where's the next hotel?' Martin smiled a smug little smile. "'What?' Susan asked, irritated. "'You're sounding like me now. "'What? Am not. "'And walking fifty miles still sounds dumb. "'I'm talking about maybe a mile more. "'Not the same thing. Totally not the same.' Susan peered around the cityscape. "'Where is the next hotel?' Martin regretted his little irony dig. She was under a lot of stress already and certainly did not need someone making wisecracks. He decided to be all business the rest of the time, and he hoped that she would forget about his lame attempt at humor. Uh, well, I hadn't marked hotels on my little map, he said, but maybe I should have. I do know that there's a Hyatt a couple miles further up 93 in Medford. He showed her his map. We're here, and the Hyatt is right about there, just over the river. 93 is the most direct route. Well, how far is that? Two, maybe two and a half miles? Ah, I don't want to sound whiny, but that's another hour of walking. I'm already tired. I sure hope that Hyatt has a room on a lower floor. No stairs, and no fighting. Martin gazed at the upper deck of 93. I was planning to hitchhike on 93. Traffic is heavy up there, but moving. That's better than down on the lower deck and the surface roads, which are all dead stop. We could hitchhike on 93 and get a ride for the two miles. Or walk down here. Which would you rather do? Your call. Susan squinted at the traffic, moving at a walking pace on the upper deck. I've never hitchhiked before. It seems risky. It sounds like there's a but coming, Martin interjected. Yeah, but my feet really hurt. I suppose since you're coming too and it's broad daylight, but if I get the slightest sense of something creepy from whoever the driver is, I am not getting in their car. No sketchy vans. No old cars with black windows. Okay, okay, I get it. No risky rides. Agreed. It's not like I'd like to get into a sketchy van either. Over there's the on-ramp. We'd better get started. Martin and Susan walked along the breakdown lane of 93. All four lanes inched along. Sometimes cars rolled slightly faster than they were walking. Sometimes traffic stopped and the pair got ahead. I've been trying to catch the eye of one of these drivers, Martin said. You know, ask with my eyes, but they're either ignoring us or we've become invisible. He studied his hand against the skyline to check for transparency. These shoes are always so comfortable, Susan said, but then I don't think I've ever walked this much in them before. I'm beat. Martin spotted a tradesman's pickup slowly catching up with them. Walsh Brothers Remodeling, Manchester, New Hampshire, was painted on the door. It was an extended cab pickup, so Martin thought they might have room. The truck's passenger had his window down, an elbow on the sill, so it would be harder to ignore him. Hey there, Martin called and waved. The man gave a little wave back. Think you could give a couple of tired travelers a ride? Ain't no room, sorry said the young man. Beds full of scrap, back seats full of buckets and tools. Those were technicalities, not an outright rejection. So Martin kept up his appeal. Maybe tool buckets could be moved. Maybe sitting on scrap metal wouldn't be so bad. He had a fish on the line. He might as well see if he could reel it in. 
Oh, well, it's just the young lady here is really tired. It was a blatant appeal to the young man's chivalry. The man shrugged at the impasse. Sorry, too much stuff in the back. Martin was not quite ready to give up on a possible ride. A plan B flashed through his mind. Maybe we could just stand on your running boards, hang on to your pipe rack. We'd settle for that. We could what? Susan was taken by surprise. Ride on the outside? I've never ridden on the outside of a truck before. That doesn't sound safe. You'd rather walk, Martin said out of the side of his mouth. Smile at the nice man. The young man looked skeptical, so Martin tried harder to sell the idea. Not much can happen at these speeds, right? And we're not going far. Sure would beat walking. He felt his smile was a little too cheesy, but he held on to it. The driver and passenger discussed his proposal. Martin and Susan walked faster so as to stay even with the truck and maintain eye contact. Yeah, come on up, the passenger waved them over.